Well, good morning, everybody. It's good to see you. Well, a couple things before we jump into 1 John. We are going to be looking at this book together. But yeah, just a a few things more on a family business side. Um, One is just about this room uh, and these gatherings that we have on Friday mornings. Uh, We're so glad to worship here together each Friday uh, here in this hotel. But what might not surprise you is that we do everything we can to get this hotel as cheaply as we can. And the things that happen here don't happen because we hired the Dubai church assistant setup um, company to come and do this, uh, but it happens because our members jump in to serve. And so there is need all throughout uh, Friday mornings uh, in Redeemer Kids down there caring for our kids and helping them love Jesus. There's needs to greet people as they come in, make sure they feel welcome and have information that they need. There's needs to help them find a seat. There's needs to help them sing. And there's needs to make all of this happen and get these chairs in place and this sound equipment in place. So if that's you, if you would love to jump in and serve, please make yourself known to us. Uh, We do not know if you want to serve. We don't want to force you to serve. Uh, And so we would love for you to volunteer towards that end. These are not uh, jobs. These are not roles that you have to do. These are not ongoing commitments. These are occasional things. I think most of our teams serve about once a month. And then you can just jump in and serve. So if you want to do that, I want to point out Glenn Jones to you, who you've seen as our service leader this morning. Um, And you can come and talk to him. You can come talk to me. Um, Come and talk at the connections table. Just let us know that, that you would like to jump in and serve. Now, if you are not a member of the church and you would love to jump in and serve, we are really thankful for that as well. Uh, Right now, you're just our guests, and we're glad to have you. We're glad that you're with us, and we don't want to expect you to serve us. Uh, We want to serve you. Uh, But if you would like to jump in and fellowship with us and enjoy uh, using your gifts and abilities in this body, uh, the way to do that is by joining the church, which, as Glenn mentioned, you have the opportunity to do today. And so if you have not yet joined the church and you call this your church home, this is where you receive your spiritual encouragement and you want to join this church family here in Dubai, today is the last opportunity for you to do that uh, this year. It's going to be right after this service. You just walk down this hall and then down the steps and to the lower ground floor where we have our Redeemer Kids uh, ministry. Right after this service, we'll provide you lunch and then we'll just talk for a couple hours about this church and what we believe and what it means to be a member. So you don't have to register. You don't uh, have to have RSVP'd. Just come along and join us. And uh, if we need to order more pizza, we will. So just come along. So that's today, uh, membership class down there. Well, we are now going to jump into the book of First John. And um, I call it First John. I don't know about your background, where you're from, and what you call this book. Many culture, uh, church cultures call this One John. Um, so if that's you, just raise your hand. If you are a One John person, that's your background. Okay, we've got two in the front row. Got a couple back there. Okay, so I'm, I'm a, you know, so are you a First John person? Okay, well, they win, so we're just going to call it First John. I'm really sorry. And, um, and if you're an introvert, you can rejoice. That is the last time I'll ask you to interact with me this morning. <laughs> we are going to be looking at First John over the, the course of the next several weeks. We're going to take a break in December here and there to, um, to think about Christmas together. But beyond that, we'll be walking straight through this book of First John into the new year. Next week, Dr. Eric Zeller will preach to us. The week after, Daniel Mwendu, one of our elders. So make sure that you uh, don't just come today, but continue on with us as we study this book. This is a hard-hitting book. This is a powerful book. Um, It's a letter that John has written to these believers, 
And he really doesn't mince words. It's a very binary way that he teaches. A or B. In or out. You're either of the darkness or you're of the light. You're either walking with God or you're walking in sin. That's the way that he writes. He writes these sort of tests of faith. Tests to know who we are. And now, even as you might hear that, I don't know if you've read through the book already in preparation to study it together, but even as you hear that, some of you are naturally going to start looking at yourself and realizing, well, that's not me. I know that I don't 100% walk in the way that I should. I know that I'm not 100% light. So what does that mean for me? Well, take heart because John is writing this to people like you. Look in chapter 5 quickly, in verse 13. He says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you might know that you have eternal life. John wants to provide assurance. He wants to provide confidence and security. And that's why he shares these things for us and why he, he speaks so boldly to us. And so these verses that we're going to look at this morning, verses 1 to 4, are really the introduction to the book. We don't get a lot of that uh, binary testing teaching in these verses. What we actually find is him proclaiming Christ. And this is really the banner under which that whole book is going to come, is who Christ is and what it means for us. But before we jump into it, I want to look not at what it does say, but what it doesn't, because you might have noticed that as you studied it. Remarkable in this book, in this letter to a church, is that we don't know in the verses who it's from, or who it's sent to. If you think about other letters in the New Testament, like Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints of Jesus who are in Philippi, well, we know who it came from and who it's going to. But in this book, we don't hear, see that same focus. From the style of it being so much the same and echoing a lot of what we see in John's Gospel, and then with all the church fathers kind of uniformly agreeing that this came from John, we pretty much know the author is John. But who was it sent to? We kind of have no idea. We don't really know who he sent this to. A lot of people think because he didn't identify the audience, maybe it was just a general epistle. It was something that was sent, and that John just thought, you know what, this would be helpful for all the churches. I'm just going to write it down, send it out, see, see what happens. That's probably not the case. It probably is the fact that because it doesn't mention who it was written by or to, what it means is that the readers knew who they were and they knew who he was. Throughout the book, he's addressing them very intimately, calling them his children. But he's also addressing them very authoritatively as one who's earned their trust and is commanding them in certain ways and knows the issues that are going on among them and is writing to specifically address them. Not just those sin issues or in or out issues, but it seems like there's a certain group of them that have separated and are seeking to take some away. And John is writing specifically into that. So this letter is not written with sort of a, a foggy vagueness to all the churches, but it's written to a specific group of people to counsel them. Well, in verses 1 to 4 that we're looking at this morning, I don't know if you already noticed, but... As we look now to what it does say, it kind of can be confusing what it says. As the scripture was read or as you studied in your small group, I wonder if you kind of noticed the, trippy, the tricky grammar uh, that's in this set of verses. 
John seems like he's almost too excited to get out what he wants to say, so he kind of says it three or four times. He talks about what we've seen and what we've heard and we, this word of life. And then he says, well, it's the life that was made manifest. And that's what we've seen and heard and proclaimed to you. And then he says it again, and we've seen and heard and we proclaim it to you. So he's, he's repeating himself. And what's going on here? Let me see if I can summarize it for you this way. And he starts off by telling us in the beginning that there was this word of life, this thing that they had seen. But then he, he stops to clarify what that life is. In verse 2, the life was made manifest and we've seen it, and it's the eternal life. And now in verse 3, then he gets back to what he was trying to say, and he's saying, that, that life that was from the beginning, I want to proclaim that to you. And then in the latter half of verse 3 and into verse 4, he's telling us the results of that proclamation. So one way of kind of knowing within a passage how to make sense of it is to look for that action, look for that, that verb, that, that activity that's at the center of it. And here we clearly see what he's trying to do is proclaim something. He's trying to proclaim and declare something. He wants us to know about it. He's not writing to give some advice. He's not writing just to share some thoughts on how to overcome this group that left. He's writing to declare, to proclaim what God is. And we see this proclamational heartbeat all throughout the apostles' writing in the New Testament. 1 Peter 2 comes to mind, where Peter the apostle says, You, speaking of the church, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you, out of darkness and into his light. There's a proclamational impulse to the Christian life. And that's why here at Redeemer, we seek each week to proclaim to you what we see in Scripture. We want to model what we are to do throughout our lives. So we walk through books of the Bible as our normal practice, not seeking to invent creative ways to change your life, but seeking to point you to the way, the truth, and the life. And we hope that you take that into your lives, seeking to live proclamationally as you parent your children, as you make friends, as you work, that you are proclaiming the truths of who God is in your daily lives. Well, what John is doing here is he is proclaiming. And I think we see him proclaiming two things about Jesus that result in two things for us. And I want to pair those together. So pair one thing about Jesus with one result of it, and then another thing about Jesus and a result of that. So two pairs of ideas here in these four verses. The first pair tells us something about the eternal implications of who Christ is. And the second pair tells us some about the immediate implications of who Christ is. So let's look at the first pair. We see it in verses 1 and verse 4. Bookending this section of verses, John begins the letter with a simple but profound phrase, that which was from the beginning. And then he ends this introductory section of verse 4 by saying, we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. So you see what he, easily miss what he does there. In the span of four verses, he's gone from looking at the past and looking back to the beginning and even before the beginning and saying, there was someone there, the word of life, he was there in the beginning. 
And then four verses later, he's looking to the future and he's saying there's going to be a day when our joy will be complete. What we see there is that Christ, Christ, the word of life, he is the one who has existed in eternity past. And so therefore, he is the one who we can trust to secure our joy for the eternity to come. So that phrase, that was was from the beginning. This is echoing what John said in his gospel in chapter 1, that he, Christ, he was with God in the beginning and all things were made through him. Catch that? Do Do you know that? Do you believe that? Christ was never made. Through him, all things were made. It's not that he appeared on the scene when a baby was born in Bethlehem. He always had been. And he always will be. This is what Paul picks up in Colossians 1. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Well, this reality of Christ's eternal past gives us confidence in Him as our Savior. Our Savior, the one who we can proclaim because we know He is not merely a man. You know, many religious beliefs and traditions, they base their their way of teaching and their way of life of what one man said at a certain point in history. But where that man came from is always a bit foggy. It's kind of like, you know, some of our favorite story, uh, fairy tales and stories that begin with once upon a time, Well, what happened before the time? What was going on before then? That's what we want to know. And what we have in the Christian faith is we have a message and a Christ who is from before time. We can have great confidence in him because he is the eternal God. And we can also have great confidence in this message because it's nothing new. We're not trying to counter the the beliefs of the world with some new teaching, some new doctrine. We're simply seeking to describe what has always been. The God of the universe who manifested himself in the person and work of Jesus Christ and is known by us. Well then, in verse 4, to pair that thought with a result. So what's real about Christ is that he's eternally God. The result of that is that we can have joy completely. In verse 4. Jesus, again, he existed eternally in the past and we can have trust in him to secure our joy for the future. Again, looking back to John's gospel, chapter 16, he shares these words of Christ before his crucifixion. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also, you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive that your joy may be made full. 
So with those words, Christ really summarized the Christian experience for us. That we are people who have known sorrow. Some people are seeking to deny the existence of sorrow. They're seeking to get everything that they can out of this life. But as Christians, we know that there is sorrow. And the sorrow begins in our own hearts. That we are people who are inadequate, people who are sinful, people who have offended the holy God. And at best can only hope for some joy. And then the gospel comes. That our hope is not in ourselves, but our hope is being born again into a new, into a living way based on the sure promise of Christ that he will provide us complete joy. This is the kind of joy we want, friends. Not the joy that's fleeting, not the joy that comes and goes, not the joy that just is part of a promotion or a new relationship or a, uh, a new thing. We want the joy that's complete. Now, I don't want to offend any of the children in the room, but when I think of this, I think of Disneyland. Disneyland promises the perfect experience. We see the pictures and everyone's smiling. They're just enjoying the rides and the weather is beautiful. Everyone's eating and, and loving their experience there and Mickey, Mickey's giving high fives and it's the best time ever. But if you've ever been to Disneyland, you know that it's not really like that. It's usually raining and it's hot and humid because it's in Florida. The food you can't eat because it's so expensive. Mickey's never around. I don't even know where he is. Disneyland promises what Disneyland can't deliver. That's the best that this world has to offer. We saw this last week in our neighboring country, people that we thought had it all, and then the next minute it was taken from them. This world offers nothing lasting. Christ offers everything forever because he is God. We're living our life for the likes that we can get on Facebook instead of the eternal joy we can have forever. When God's people were restored from Babylon, they were in captivity and enslaved there. When they were brought back into the land, Psalm 26 describes it this way. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. And they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us and we are glad. As Christians, we know that the greatest thing that the Lord has ever done is sent his son Jesus to die on the cross for our sins and be risen again to new life, showing that he has power over death so that any who trust in his name can have full confidence that the joy set before him is the joy that he will share with us for eternity. So my friends, before we go on from that point, I think it's appropriate to ask you, is that true of you? Is that pursuit of joy yours? Are you looking for joy somewhere else? Are you looking for joy in your accomplishments or your experiences? Or are you looking for joy only in Christ? Those experiences that you have, they're not from the beginning. 
They're not from before creation. Those accomplishments that you have, they're not from before creation. Only Christ, God himself, can give us the confidence that we need to know that the joy we'll receive is a joy that will last forever. Friend, come to Christ. Make that be okay for you over lunch today or throughout this week to be honest with your friends and say, you know, as I look at my life, I actually see that I'm, I'm pursuing joy in other things. And I'm trusting in other things to provide me the joy that I need. Or you could simply say, you know what? I'm not thinking about eternal joy. I'm just thinking about all I can get now. Don't do that. Don't do that. Trust in Christ. He is eternal and he can secure our joy for eternity. The second pair, second pair of things that John is proclaiming about Christ and matching it with the result in our life, the second one we see sandwiched between those two. And it's something about the imminence of Christ. So we first saw that Christ was eternal, and he promises us eternal joy because he is God. And now in the middle here, we see something different. Christ's imminence to us. That he came to us and he dwelt among us. And the result is that we now might know him and each other. So John's comment there, he talks again and again that the life was made manifest and we've seen it and we testified to it. And John is drawing on his authority to talk about Jesus based on his intimate personal knowledge with Jesus. And we think about John. John was someone who traveled with Jesus for over three years. And you know, you can get to know somebody pretty well when you travel with them. I don't know if you've ever had that experience where you, um, you and a friend go on a trip together and you come to know all kinds of things about them that you didn't ever know. There's a, traveling teaches you things. I, I learned this, this last couple of weeks in the Philippines when I was traveling with Pastor Glenn and Pastor Alvin and John Norris and we were in Manila, and we were stuck in traffic. No surprise, right? We were stuck in traffic in Manila, and I think we, you know, we had another 10 kilometers and 10 hours to go, and we didn't know what we were going to do. And so I said, hey, carpool karaoke, let's do that. So I just turned on some music on my phone just to see if anybody knew the song. Would you believe that all three of those pastors knew every word to I Want It That Way by Backstreet Boys? <laughs> I did not know that about them before I traveled with them. And I cannot say whether I participated or not. John knew Jesus well. John had traveled with him. John had lived with him. John had eaten with him. And this is John, the the disciple whom Jesus loved. John who, at the Last Supper, was so close to Christ in the moments before his death that he could just lean back and talk to him face to face. This is John who, when Christ was hanging on the cross, Christ looked down and saw John and treated him like only he would treat a brother. He said, hey, will you take care of mom? This is John who, when he heard the news that the tomb was empty, he outran Peter to get there. He said, I've got to see it. Jesus is alive? John knew Jesus well, and he loved him. And he's leaning on that in these verses, saying again and again, it's like he can't get over it. 
He's saying, guys, I saw him. I touched him. I heard him. He was real. He was manifested. This is what theologians call the doctrine of incarnation. The doctrine of the incarnation. That God himself, the eternal God, became a man. He didn't become like a man. It wasn't just a ghost that kind of looked like a man. And he wasn't just a man that was super godly. He was 100% God and 100% man. The mystery of the incarnation, but yet the beauty of it. And what's fascinating here and what John is leading us to think about is just how God came to dwell among man in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ leads us in a way that we can now dwell with the Father. You see that transition? He talks about how Christ came and was manifested. Although he was with the Father, he came to us. We've seen him and we heard him. What we're proclaiming to you is that you can have fellowship with him. With who? With the Father. Now, friends, let's not pass over that too quickly. We can have fellowship with the Father. That's amazing. This is the Father, the Father God, the Holy One of Israel, who was, although they were His people, they were separate from Him. Throughout the Old Testament, we read about how they would approach Him in fear and in trembling, and even then they were separated by the curtain. They couldn't enter His presence. And now John, with the stroke of a pen, is saying, you can have fellowship with Him. You can know him and be known by him through Jesus Christ. Paul says it this way in Galatians. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. We can have fellowship with the Father. We can call him Dad. We can come in unannounced and eat the food from the fridge. We can be like my son Winston this morning. I got up early so I could look over these notes, and Winston got up early so he could bother me. But he didn't care. He just toddled over, one year old. I'm sitting there on the couch. And he doesn't care that I'm Scott Zeller, that I'm going to preach in a really nice tie. (laughs) He just sees a warm place where he might get a hug. He says, I want to go see Dad. That's what we can do with the Father. The Father loves us and he welcomes us and he wants to fellowship with us. And that's what we see in the incarnation, that he loved us so much that he didn't remain in heaven, but he came to us to seek us and save us so that we might be reconciled to him. And I want to kind of paint a picture for you of of the point that John's making here because it's profound. Not only do we have fellowship with the Father, but as we have fellowship with the Father, we're drawn into fellowship with one another. It's like this. Imagine a table here and you've got just different blocks on the table and each one of them has a string attached to it. And someone comes around and they gather all the different strings and they start pulling up, what happens? The blocks come together. 
They're not spread out anymore, but as the, as the string pulls up, they come together. And that's what happens to us as believers and as, as people who are looking up to Christ and trusting in Him and having fellowship with the Father, we necessarily begin coming together. That's where He says there, we have fellowship with us. Our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ, and you can have fellowship with us. Again, this is, this is amazing. John, the one who saw Jesus, the one who walked with Jesus and talked with Jesus, is now talking to people who had never seen Jesus. And he isn't coming to them saying, Now guys, I'm the apostle that Jesus loved. And so I'm first place. But you can also have a certain kind of fellowship, an associate membership in this club. No, he's saying the same intimacy that I have with Christ, the same knowledge that I have with the Father, you can have that too. He's passing on the baton of fellowship to them. And he's saying they're going to do that together. You know, friends, so often when people come and visit us at Redeemer, and and we say it too often because it's true, is just that as we look around this room and we see people from so many different nations... It's just amazing. It's a blessing. Wow. God is gathering people from all tribes and tongues, and we just see a glimpse of that here in this room. And it is remarkable. But you know what? When I think of that, I also think of the reality of how unremarkable it is. I mean, this is Dubai. I could open up a hamburger stand, and I would get the same diversity. Just come in the queue. What's remarkable about us is not that we're from so many different nations, but that we have the same Father. Now this, in some ways, looks like heaven will look. But there's an even better way to look like heaven. We're going to look like heaven when we prefer one another. We're going to look like heaven when a young Nigerian seeks to disciple and invest in an older Indian. We're going to be looking more like heaven when someone who's coming in here with wealth and the world's status is the first one to step forward to serve. We're going to be looking more like heaven when we're not worried about if we're going to say the perfect English word, but we step out seeking to know and be known. We're going to look more like heaven when we don't sit back and use our Christian liberty to do whatever we want, but we prefer one another and don't offend them. We're going to start looking more like heaven when our first delight in relationships is not the comfort that we feel with the person when we're talking with them, but the fire that we see in their hearts for Christ. And that's what draws us to them, like warming our hands on a fire. We're going to start to look more like heaven when what's remarkable about us is not our diversity, but our unity. And friends, that's our prayer as elders for this church, and I hope that's your prayer as well, is not just to be together in a room, but to be united in Christ. Because we're all around that chair. We're all around that that sofa. We're all the children that are jumping up into his lap, lap, pushing each other off. You know, if you come into a zoo, you're not surprised if you see animals, right? You go to the zoo, and, wow, there's the lions... There's the tigers, there's the bears, there's the snake section. It's a zoo. That's what zoos have. So in some ways, 
why are we surprised when we come in this room and there's people from different nations? This is Dubai. But what would be amazing if you went to that zoo and the lion is chilling with the elephant and the sheep are hanging out with the snakes and the tiger is hanging out with the monkey. No, no, you eat the bananas. You can have them. They're just spending time together and loving one another. That would be amazing. That would be crazy. Friends, that's what we want to see here in this church is relationships that have no explanation other than the supernatural work of grace that has taken place in their life to direct their hearts away from what they find comfortable and to the Father who has welcomed them. Friends, Christ modeled this for us. He left heaven to come to earth, to fellowship with us, to dwell with us, so that we might dwell together now and with the Father forever. The last song we'll sing, Oh, how good it is to embrace his command, to prefer one another and forgive as he forgives. When we live as one, we all share in the love of the Son with the Father and the Spirit. So friends, two things this morning from this passage. Christ is eternal. He was from before all time and will be for all time. And in him, you can have eternal confidence and complete joy that will be yours. And Christ also became a man. He dwelt among us so that we might know him and that we might have fellowship with one another. Let's pray together.